Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And if you appreciate what we're doing here, please consider subscribing on your podcast app. Give us a review and tell a friend about uh, politicsandreligion.us. The end is spelled out. It's the easiest way to find us. Just go to politicsandreligion.us. And now since this person, her work and this topic strike right at the heart of our mission, I'm just gonna dive right in and introduce our wonderful guest. Monica Guzman is Senior Fellow for Public Practice at Braver Angels. By the way, an organization I feel just absolutely passionate about figuring out how to give to and reach out to and get involved with. I've read about it through your book and heard about it through other podcasts I listen to. So, so glad to learn more about it. Looking forward to um, participate however I can. Um, that is the nation's largest cross-partisan grassroots organization working to depolarize America. What a novel idea. Uh, <laughs> uh, Monica is also founder and CEO of Reclaim Curiosity, an organization working to build a more curious world and co-founder of the award-winning Seattle newsletter, The Evergrey. She was a 2019 fellow at the Henry M. Jackson Foundation and a 2016 fellow at the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University. I think I've heard of that college. Uh, <laughs> people say it's pretty good. Um, Monica served twice as a juror for the Pulitzer Prize. Is it Pulitzer or Pulitzer? Oh my gosh. I've heard it both ways. I yeah. don't know. Take your pick. Okay. Pula Pulitzer. Um, uh, Monica is a Mexican immigrant, Latina, and dual U.S.-Mexico citizen, and is the author of a great book, which we'll talk about a great deal today, I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Monica, I am so glad you're joining me. I have so many questions. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's it's wonderful uh, to be here. I love love talking about all this messy stuff. Oh, messy. Uh, so I'm, I'm a fan. Messy indeed. So I'd like to start by asking you about your grandmother's giant round dining room table. And to just and please correct me if I if I don't pronounce this. Sobre mesa. Sobre mesa. Yeah. Sobre mesa. Okay. Sobre mesa. Yeah. Yeah. So uh Sobremesa is a word in Spanish that doesn't really have a translation in English, and it refers to the conversation that follows a meal. When everyone stays at the table, maybe the plates have been cleared, maybe not, but it can be an hour, it can be two hours, depending on how engaged everyone is with each other. So in my grandmother's dining room was this big, really heavy wooden table, and it was round, and all my aunts and uncles and you know, a couple cousins would sit around there and me and my brother, when the meal would be over, we would get out of there because what's the point of sitting around when you're a kid 
and just hearing adults talk, it it just it was it mystified us all, right? When we were young, like how is this fun? And so I'd go and watch TV or play a game in the rec room or go outside. But every now and then I would hear, you know, peals of laughter from that room. And it would be two hours later. And I'd realize, my gosh, they're still there, you know, and, and it'd be that mystery again. Like, how could they be having any fun? Or I would hear them fight and, and voices kind of get loud. And I think, uh oh, but then boom, laughter again. And something's been sort of released. And of course, it took me ages to realize that conversation is delightful and extraordinary and a whole journey. And even though you're just sitting there, (laughs) adults find a lot to love about conversation. Was there a moment in your life when you went from wanting to escape to go watch cartoons to really wanting to be around that table, the Sobra Mesa? Oh, yeah. Oh, what a great question. There there was a time when I I did start to stick around the older I got. yeah. And so my guess is that it was somewhere in the early teens. Um, my grandmother's house, you know, I remember she had toys for little kids. But once you're a teenager, what toys really are going to entertain you? So that the rest of the house got a little boring. So that was one thing. And then I did find myself more and more, I guess, in, enticed by whatever they were talking about. Uh, you know, your my parents started to become human beings in and of themselves instead of just protectors <laughs> or or authority figures in my life. And I don't remember the moment, but what a, what a great point! I would sit there, and I, I remember the feeling of, are people going to ask me to leave? You know, looking around where like the the cigarettes started to come out, you know, in the ashtrays, and me going like, do I belong? Am I allowed to say anything? And I would spend a lot of time, I think, listening. And then every now and then someone would turn to me and and I slowly found my way in. Mm. Do you, you know, it, you just reminded me of, of, I didn't remember this until I you prompted that question and then you started to share that season of life for you. Um, do you mind if I share a quick story? Please, yeah. So in New Jersey, where I grew up, I, we started on the New York side, moved and grew up in my teenage years in Jersey. You don't get your driver's license till you're 17. So I got my driver's license and that's when I started driving into Brooklyn to spend time with my grandparents alone, my Baba and my Zeta. Uh, my Baba was born in Ukraine, uh, shtetl in Ukraine. Uh, my grandfather grew up, he, he was basically on his own when he was 16 years old. And um, what I loved about being able to drive was going and spending time with them and sitting around their little table in Brooklyn, New York, you know, mm-hmm. um, and my grandfather. It's going to sound really weird. I don't know if I've ever shared this on this program. Um, My grandmother used to make me a tuna fish and peanut butter sandwich. (laughs) Oh, what is that? Did you like that from the beginning or was it an acquired taste? I asked her to make it for me one day and then she just remembered it Um, because I was being silly. I was being like childish, you know, and when I I don't know how old I was, six or seven years old. And Mm -hmm. she always remembered that, but she made it so well. So I I just into my adulthood, she uh, my young adulthood, she made that for me. But, you know, the greatest part of that um, was, um, sorry, I'm getting like, uh, choked yeah. up remembering oh, it. This is awesome. Yeah. The stories that, you know, uh, mo- mostly it was my grandfather who would just go on for literally hours about him growing up. And he knew a lot about, um, his, uh, Bob's family, my grandmother's family, um, mm-hmm. because they basically adopted him at such a young age. They met when he was 16 and they basically adopted him and he ran the family grocery store. 
and then uh, Zaid passed away in 1995. Yeah, September of 1995. So then when I went back, I would go spend time with Baba. And then Baba would tell me stories about, they called it Russia. It was, uh, but what we know is Ukraine now. And then uh, early when she was first going to, uh, going to Erasmus Hall High School and when she first met Zayda and right. the early years. But that was um, that was a very, very magical moment uh, in my life when the rest of my life was was rather troubled. Yeah. Um, but it was also a it was also like a passing of the torch in a way, yeah. you know, and a coming oh, of yeah. age in a way. Yeah. It was part of that process, I think. Anyway, I'm sorry. It's not my. Uh, I'm the interviewer, not the interviewee. Sorry. No, 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 no. I, I mean, this is a conversation. Uh, yeah, around that same dining room table, there was a time when I was in college, my junior year. I studied abroad in England, and we had trimesters. So there was a month break where I was like, "What do I do with myself?" And I said, "I'm going to go to Mexico." So I ended up staying with my grandparents without my parents there. Mm. So that was the first time that had happened, and. That was that was incredible. And so same same kind of thing. My grandmother sitting there going through boxes of photos, none of them organized, but showing me great grandparents and, you know, the the the, the people who came from Spain and Italy way back when. And whoa, that was wow. so cool. That was pretty magical. Yeah. So so you learned where where your heritage is like generations and generations ago. That yeah. must be pretty cool learning that history. To your point, it there there is a sense of magic where you're sort of transported and and everything else disappears. Like, I don't know how long those conversations were and I don't care, you know, yeah. it doesn't, it didn't matter. Time, time wasn't a thing. Yeah. It, it, um, oh, that makes so much sense. Time isn't a thing. Um, uh, because, um, oh, this always, this often comes to mind. I always butcher the, the expression, this mid-century Jewish, uh, philosopher talked about, um, the intersection of time and the present Wait, the intersection of eternity and the present mm. is is now, right? So yeah. I don't know. It, it yep, seems I know I'm butchering it, but it's it, it seems very profound that there there is something that that sort of disintegrates uh, when you're having connections that transcend the immediacy of a moment. Yes. You know what I mean? Exactly. So. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, it's everything. It's everything. Yeah. yeah. So I so th there is another uh, set of relationships um, kind of in family you, you've already alluded to. You describe yourself sometimes as the proud liberal daughter of conservative parents. Mm -hmm. Is that the relationship and those conversations at the heart of a lot of the work that you do today? Yeah. Uh, the more I've reflect back, so much of what animates what's become an obsession for me with the political divide, you know, all kinds of social divides really comes down to me and my parents. Mm. Um, we're Mexican immigrants, uh, became citizens in the year 2000. I was 17. So I was naturalized when my parents took the, the test to become American citizens. And um, it became pretty clear pretty immediately that they were going to be Republicans. And I was in high school at the time. And, and I was like, well, why? Really? You're going to be Republicans? Isn't Democrat the obvious choice here? What's going on, mom and dad? Uh, and so I was in my own silo, right? In my own little hole. Yeah. And so the intervening years were just a lot of really interesting conversations. We were a very close knit family. We still are. Don't hold a lot back. And so, uh, yeah, there'd be loud. I, I sometimes would sit in restaurants going, well, it's a good thing no one around us understands our language. 
because otherwise we'd be getting all kinds of looks. So it felt like because we spoke Spanish in this small New Hampshire town where no one else spoke Spanish, it felt like we could speak at elevated levels because it was all background <laughs> gibberish to anyone anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I think we spoke fairly loudly and argued about Glenn Beck and welfare and Clinton and George Bush and all that. Oh, man. Um, yeah. So then at the in the 2016 presidential campaign and election, that's when things got heated to an alarming degree, like it did for many families across the country. Uh, and the thing that the thing that really floored me, I think, was, <clears throat> you know, I would have my conversations with my parents. They would be really tough. I'd get mad. They'd get mad back. It, it got it got, you know, kind of nuts. Uh, but but we all we, we ended up at a place where I could I could go, OK, I, I see where you're coming from. I get that it makes sense. I hate it, but it makes sense. And uh, and then I would go and, you know, hang out with my liberal friends, mostly liberal friends here in Seattle. And, and, you know, without meaning to necessarily, they, they would talk in 2017 after the election about people who voted for Trump, like, like they're just vermin. And, you know, and so a lot of folks didn't know that my parents, you know, were like this. And not only that, but that, that I loved them, you know, and it, 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 so anyway, I think it was that it was, it was just me looking around and going, there is so much people are missing. Yeah. about people who made a different choice from them and this this derision i think is beneath us and i didn't know how to say it i didn't know how to make the case i was like this is not who we are it shouldn't be who we are uh so that honestly like a lot changed from that yeah you know it's funny that you mentioned that it was 2000 that your parents uh that that you became citizens um that was the mo that was the the year I, I grew up in a very observant Jewish family. Uh, we went to an Orthodox synagogue. Mm -hmm. um, that spring into the summer and into the early fall, I was uh, in a basically obsessive inquiry that led to me becoming a, a Christian, mm -hmm. like a Bible thumping, uh, born again, the whole, no you know, yeah. Wow. yeah. Um, and they were two very different worlds. In fact, it, talk about like, we don't, we're in two such different worlds. My father would send me material to read and to consider over the course of the next three to five years. We were in this really long dialogue about it. And uh, one of the treatises he sent me was called, You Take Jesus, I'll Take God. And the way he could never refer, the the, the rabbi who wrote it could never refer to just Christians. Mm -hmm. He always referred to Bible thumpers or Jesus freaks mm -hmm. or, you know, these der derogatory yeah. terms, you know. Yeah. Um, but that, that was the, um, in some ways, that's what led to the project, th th this project, and why I'm so passionate about this, because obviously I, you know, the religious part of it was talking to my, you know, father in particular about how I came to these conclusions and why I made this decision, uh, but also, um, and, and learning to have really difficult conversations about just deeply held, not just beliefs, yeah. but it's like who we are, it's our family, it's our heritage, it's, it's our race, you know, but also, when I when I started going to church, I realized, oh, this is not just a bunch of people who buy into this theological set of propositions or philosophical set of propositions. This is like this cultural subcultural group that I'm a part of now. And a lot of the things talk about the hierarchy of, of uh, values. You know, yep. I took that test that that you described oh, yeah. the Schwartz um, yep. human value. I think it's just called the human values test. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, like these folks are. Like their set of values is very different. Like I had to come to grips with that in particular political and social mm -hmm. positions uh, that were like, oh, wait, hold on. I don't necessarily like you're saying we 
I'm not part of that way. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm part of the whole Jesus mm-hmm. thing, you know, like, so I was curious though, if you, 2000 was an interesting year to become citizens. If it was post 9-11, would it have been more difficult for your family to go through that process? Oh yeah. I, you know, I, had, I hadn't considered that. It's certainly possible. I'm not, I'm not very familiar with precisely what changed mm-hmm. on immigration and all the other things that we kind of questioned, you know, as a country uh, after all that. So I'm not, I'm not sure, but yeah. I, I do know that it took a while, right? My parents were sort of waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. So it can, it can take a while to get an application all the way through. They were really happy. The photos mm-hmm. from that ceremony, which I really like looking at them because they're just you know, they're holding their little flag and it's yeah. just so, so sweet. Yeah. And I'm just this awkward teenager next to them. But uh, yeah, they really were very, very proud. Um, and it's something that I've thought about. A lot of Americans who are native born don't have the experience of choosing America as their country. And so, yeah, to, I remember my parents studying up, you know, on, on the United States and going through that testing process and everything and they really they really felt it they really felt that this is where they want to be and um anyway it's a really it's a really interesting experience for immigrants who become citizens to choose a country so you you mention uh, an incident in the book where um an organization you were affiliated with, affiliated with made an assumption about your family's story uh, that was a wrong assumption, you know, and you even said just just now that you emigrated from Mexico and ended up in New Hampshire. That's mm-hmm. not where a lot of folks who emigrate from Mexico end up. Mm-hmm. What was how was that? What what brought your family here? What was the um, the situation? Yeah. So my dad uh, studied chemical engineering in college in Mexico, but then his first job was in computer engineering. And so he was in that late 70s, early 80s computing thing that happened. And he loved it. He, mm. he just fell for it. He's He was a coder his entire career. He recently retired, but he was a software engineer till the end. Like, uh, So yeah, so he ended up working for a German company that had factories and offices, uh, multiple places around the world. So he worked at the one in Saltillo, Mexico. And then they said, you know, we want to transfer everyone up. We want to transfer you up to uh, our facility in Dallas, Texas. So we went there and lived there many years as residents. And then we want to get you to, uh, we're going to bring our IT department all into Dover, New Hampshire. And then it was in that process, you know, after we lived in New Hampshire a time that my dad said, okay, it's time to, you know, make, make this official, (laughs) put a ring on it, if you will, and (laughs) apply for citizenship. But yeah, it was through, it was through his work. That's uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I could now nah, see now I'm making assumptions about that, that story, that journey that might lead one to become more conservative and support a George W. Bush, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But again, you, like in your book, you caution against making assumptions like that. We, you know, we shouldn't come uh, immediately to conclusions. Well, this, this this brings something to mind, actually. So I um, there's someone I know who is also in journalism and also an immigrant. And she was telling me, she often speaks to, you know, Democrats, liberals, and then will also speak to Republicans, conservatives, you know, rooms of very different audiences. And she was telling me how differently the two groups view her immigrant status. So when she's with Republicans and conservatives, she said, 
it's often like a point of pride. Like I'm an immigrant, look what's possible. You know, she can sort of hold herself that way. Like, yeah, I'm, I'll show what the American dream is all about. Um, when she's with liberals, there's, she said that sometimes there's more of an expectation of she should talk about the struggle. She should talk about what she hasn't been able to accomplish, you know, what's unfair in the world for her. And so it's so interesting <laughs> that the two sides will look at it pretty differently. Right. But, right. but neither, neither of them looks at it in a, in a bad way. It's there. It, both, both things are right. There's, there's plenty, you know, there's plenty that isn't accepted yet, you know, but there's also a lot of opportunity. So which is it? You know? Yeah. You know, it's funny because that the grid, I don't know, or the pie chart that came back after I took that test, the human values test, um, it was different. There were different colors for each of the values. So we're literally looking through a different lens, depending on which one, which one of those values scores higher. So mm -hmm. as folks value uh, universality, I think was one of them, for example, if that mm -hmm. one scores higher than um, benevolence. What, benevolence no. or yeah. following the, I forgot the word for following conformity. The yeah. No. Conformity or authority. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple yeah. Of those. That, then it, we see things differently because we're literally seeing things through, not literally, but seeing things through a different lens. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yep. Yep. There's so, so see, much of that that happens and that, that we, we forget to ask, you yeah. know, is this, a, is this, is this just an evil, stupid or crazy person? Or are they seeing things, things through a different lens, you know, and could I, could I grab that lens and put it on and go, oh, this makes sense, you know, and then put the lens down and go, that's not my lens, but I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of which and, and epiphanies that you had, or I don't know if this is right, if you say it this way, but I, I started to read it as into it. Yeah. Into it moments. Yeah. Into yeah. it moments. Yeah. So I never thought of it that way moments. So um, a good way to dive into, into it is to ask you about another special person in your life, Sandy McNabb. Oh, yeah. So can you share who Sandy is and some of what you learned from Sandy? Yeah. So Sandy is a career agricultural agent out of Sherman County, Oregon, which is the second smallest county in Oregon. It's about 2,000 people. It's largely wheat farmers. So he retired a few years ago, had a long and incredible career. His family got to that area in like the 1890s uh there's actually a road in sherman county called mcnab lane uh, oh I wow saw it. and sandy sandy is just fantastic the way that i met him was through the newsletter that i co-founded in seattle the evergrey after the 2016 election seattle was dead felt dead very confused and the folks many of the folks who read our newsletter which included a lot of young people, a lot of people newer to the city. We we had a, a value as a publication of being curious. And so people said, I want to be curious about people who made this choice that I don't understand, but I don't know how to be curious really because I don't know them. I, I, I haven't talked to them. I, I don't know how to. And so we came across this interactive online map where you plug in your own county anywhere in the U.S., and it spits out the county nearest to yours that voted exactly opposite in that election. Oh, wow. So it turned out that King County, Washington, the opposite was Sherman County, Oregon. Uh, they went 74% for Trump instead of 74% for Clinton. So that led to some Googling, some sort of like Hail Mary passes of, I don't even know if this is going to work, but let's see if we can find out. And um, one thing led to another, and that's how we connected with Sandy. The idea was could we partner to co-create some kind of visit to Sherman County where 
we would get to know each other. We would begin, just just begin to get curious about each other with each other, which I think is so essential. Uh, and and yeah, we ended up doing it in March of 2017, and it was an absolute game changer. I've talked to many of the folks who went. It was about 19, 20 people from King County meeting with about 16, 17 people from Sherman County. And yeah, it was it was a wild, it was incredible experience on so many levels and a lot of things were learned. So how did you, I have a lot of questions about like putting that event together and structuring it in, in a way that gave yourself and the group the best chances of it being an edifying versus, oh, I'm not allowed. To, my brother says I use the word edifying too much, but that's what yeah. this is. Like I'm being edified. Yeah. Um, so ha having it being a positive and informative, enlightening experience, rather than one that devolves into, you know, what we see every day online. Yeah. Um, how did you, how did you plan for that? Did you collaborate? You So you do describe some of it in the book, but mm -hmm. like, how did you come up with the right questions or structure for the day? Yeah. I mean, to this day, I don't think I've ever worked so hard on any single event. We were very scared of it going all wrong. So that was an animating force. When we sort of advertised the event to our readership, we made very clear over and over again, if you want to persuade, you want to change people, if you want to tell them why they're wrong, this is not for you. Mm. This is about understanding. This is about being curious. You know, we're not going to be there for that long. And, and, and that's the intent. So I'm pretty sure that weeded out some folks. Also, it was a five-hour bus ride mm. down there for four hours of conversation and then a five-hour bus ride back. So you better be sold on what we're here to do, right? Because if you're if you're a bad actor, it's going to be a long trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that helped from the Seattle side. Um, from the Sherman County side, it was talking with Sandy, you know, similar thing about what what we want, what we don't want. And and he said, you know, I've I've got some folks I think that would come in with the right spirit. So let me go and, and find out who those folks are. I kind of know everyone in town anyway. Uh so he he curated a great list. So that was part of it. But but a lot of it really was every gesture. Every, I mean so Ralph Waldo Emerson is my favorite philosopher. My youngest um, son is named Emerson, by the way. Oh, is that right? Is that yeah. that's intentional for Ralph? Yeah, yeah. Love that's it. Right. Oh my yeah. gosh, I love Emerson. Uh, but he says that, you know, virtue emits a breath. Uh, so it's not the big gestures, it's everything you do. Like, how does the work breathe? Because if you say over here, oh yeah, we're here to understand each other, and then in the little ways you alienate and you dominate and you condescend, then who cares? So I was really looking closely at that. There were um so we, we structured the event with Sandy, and I also reached out to um, a couple of folks who, I, you know, I, I kind of found them, that they're good at focus groups and things like that. I remember one piece of advice that we had gotten was, don't show up with cameras. Don't do that. You know, you're journalists, and, and yeah, we wanted to make it a story. Like, don't show up with cameras. Conservatives in particular have, have a real sort of shields up kind of thing to any sort of media that, that can really, if you want this to be... It, it was it was sort of like a question. Are we prioritizing the story or the experience? And we said the experience. Okay, we're leaning okay. there. Cool. That was one thing. Another was um, the first question was really important. Uh, we had everybody go around and say, what would have to happen here for you to feel like it was a good use of your time? And everybody 
basically stated the mission, right? One after the other, like, I'm here because it just feels like we're too divided. We're missing a lot about each other. I can't stand how angry we are. You know, I know there's a divide between the city and the town. I hope you all can understand us a little better, uh, you know, things like that. And so once everybody heard that from everyone else, man, it just it, it just aligns everybody. It locks you in. Um, maybe one of the most important things is that we didn't just start by talking about politics. We started with a tour, uh, a bus tour of Sherman County. It wasn't very long because we got there a bit late, but we were able to see like the endless wheat fields and hear from people who, for whom this is like life and this is everything. Not only is it life in terms of livelihoods, but they're also making food. You know, And there's this moment I talk about in the book where Darren Paget, one of the farmers from Sherman County, it, during the event, we had all eaten sandwiches. They had donated it. And he goes, if you knew what it took to put that sandwich on your plate and you just could hear a pin drop and everyone in Seattle was like, Oh my God, <laughs> what do we know in the city? We don't know anything. Uh, so there was a lot of humility. There was a lot of eye-opening um, moments and a lot of a lot of heartfelt, just candor, you know, throughout. Um, and yeah, and we figured out the structure slowly, carefully, you know, using the best of what my co-founder and I had learned and what Sandy had learned being a community leader. So he contributed some exercises. We did, we got feedback, you know, and by the time we were on our way down, we were pretty confident that we had done the best we could in setting something up that would be good. But my heart was still pounding on the bus. Oh, yeah. Down. Pounding. Um, and I had talked to friends who are facilitators. What if, you know, what if somebody gets violent? What if somebody yells like really loud? What if somebody can't stand it anymore? We had all these contingencies. But one of my biggest lessons, the one that I actually didn't really put in there as strongly as I did in an earlier draft, is I couldn't believe that I thought it was going to go so badly. Oh, <laughs> why? Why did I think it was going to go so poorly? Why did I think that people it's like when we're apart and in our own tribes, you know, we we think such terrible things of each other. We can only imagine the worst of, about coming together and we come together and it's like. We're just people. Yeah. Yeah. We're just people like it's really, really hard to hate someone up close. It's really hard even to be that dismissive or suspicious. You know, you're you're also worried about yourself. And so you're careful, but you're open and you're warm and you're open hearted. And and that was a big thing. I was like, what was I so afraid of? <laughs> you know, we could have gone farther. We could have gone deeper. I didn't realize. Yeah, that's where your SOS framework really helps uh, to understand the dilemma that we're in and the degree to which social media only exacerbates that. What I mean by SOS and you, you can describe it. Uh, obviously better than I could, but um, sorting, othering, and siloing. I got that right, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Um, but sorting means, you know, we're literally seeking out states and towns where we're among others. So one of the, one of my questions was, was anybody in Sherman County left-leaning or or, mm -hmm. or anybody from King County right-leaning? Or was mm -hmm. it all just like, we're all wearing our jerseys and we're all, mm -hmm. this is all blue, this is all red? Mm -hmm. No one from King County was right-leaning. Uh, a handful of people from Sherman County were left-leaning pretty moderately. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and there was like maybe two or three people from Sherman County who were either, well, they, they I wouldn't say they were centrist, but they were politically homeless is a term that people use. Mm. Um, there was one woman I wrote in the book who didn't vote. Right. And she was fascinating to me, you know, because she was one that I, I, I realized later, like I had a judgment against that, you know, mm -hmm. one way or the other, but how do you not vote? And later when I went down to Sherman County a couple of years later and and talked to her and, and I asked her about, you know, the experiences, like, tell me what led you to not vote. 
And she told me that story. And then I understood. And I, I stopped judging the decision so much. She, she told me about how she imagined herself filling out the, tr- the ballot for Trump. And then she imagined herself filling out the ballot for, you know, um, Clinton for at the time. Yeah. Clinton, yeah. And, and just both of them made her sick. Mm. Just couldn't. It made her sick. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I can't. How can I judge that? You know, it's like we're, the, 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 the diversity uh, of perspectives is, is one of the most incredible things about our society. Yeah. And, and it's so easy to stand in judgment of someone who would make a choice you think is so, so silly to not vote. It's like, well, Lena, walk in her shoes for a bit, you know, like learn about her background, learn about how she voted for Obama and then saw a lot of a lot of stuff she didn't like. And then she kind of crept to the Republicans. But even then it was a little rough. She she didn't vote and that was the right choice for her. And it took me a while to understand that. Yeah. 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 I had I realized that I had the luxury of voting on principle in 2016. Because that's when I realized, oh, man, I really got to make a decision here. Now, I was never considering voting for Trump just to kind of put it all out there. But Clinton was not. I I wondered, though, if I didn't live in California and I lived in a state like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, would I be afforded the same luxury of being able to cast a vote in 2016? Who was it? Uh, Johnson was the independent or the libertarian or whatever. Um, Yeah. There was a third, you know, Gary, yeah. I think it was Gary Johnson. I think it was. So I just voted for Johnson on principle because my vote in California doesn't, like, listen, for president, it doesn't really matter. Like, yeah. the Democrats yeah. going to win, at least for the foreseeable yeah. future. So I do wonder, though, what I would have done. I think I would have brought myself mm-hmm. to voting for for Clinton in two, 2016, mm-hmm. at least on the resume. I, I There's a lot of uh, positions she took that I, I had a hard time with. Um, you know, there were a lot of other Democratic candidates that I would have had an easier time voting for. But um, I get it. I get it. Everybody's yeah. everybody's the way that they arrive at their decision to me is is almost more interesting than the decision itself. Exactly. You know? Oh, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. That's a, that's a beautifully put. Yeah, that's the thing to get curious about, you know, figure out what path they took to that to that decision. And you'll discover some things that you may not have thought about and. Whatever judgment you have will, you know, it'll change. It'll change. So that that landscape that you describe in Sherman County, Oregon, it made me think of our, it made me make this analogy between our default posture. A lot of us have this default posture, and you described it before, as one of just automatic contentiousness. If we get into these conversations, it seems like we're automatically pre-wired, but I don't think we're pre-wired. It's more like a bad habit that we've learned to be in this contest. We want to win the contest. And like, you know, we think that we can persuade if we drop the perfect rhetorical little bomb, you know? And that to me in Sherman County would be like, soil that is just completely crusty that has no nutrients in it you know that it can't it can't go anywhere that can't grow anything whereas curiosity is fertile soil so how do you how and this is a lot of what the book is about but i'd love for you to share how you begin to penetrate that crusted soil that default posture of contentiousness and and ease someone into a posture of curiosity Mm mm-hmm yeah, I think the key is that people can't hear unless they're heard. And so it's about actually hearing the other person. A lot of times when people come together across disagreement, they come with their shields up and some guarded suspicions, assuming that it's going to be a showdown or a test, 
of their intelligence or how much news they've read or the statistics, you know, and, and that's part of it is we often make this about facts, you know, and about figures and, and all of that as if, as if facts would lead everyone to be democratic or everyone <laughs> to be Republican or right, everyone right. to be liberal. That's just not a thing. Right. <laughs> this is not a thing. We don't even want that. I'd be dumb. <laughs> so, so, you know, given that, um, what, what you need to do is look at each other as people, not as a label, not as a representative of a group. You you have to recognize that that other person, even if they believe something you think is just ridiculous, they're a lot more than that belief. And that belief may not come from the malevolent place you assume it comes mm. from. So, so that's it. It's like you, you look at it as fertile soil. Honestly, that's it. It's like we we often talk to projections of people that are in our minds. We're not even really talking to the people themselves. We're not even able to see them really. We just approach ready to fight from whatever we know about their opinion. That's enough for us. Like we go and we start. So it's, it's honestly about just seeing it differently. We often look at, at the other person as just, I have nothing to learn from you. Right. And that's the thing to change. I have plenty to learn from you. The fertile soil is you, is, is who are you? Right. Um, where did you come from? What's going on? What's in your backstory? And 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 yeah, once you kind of, you know, I talk about beginning by asking yourself the question, what am I missing? Okay, here's a disagreement. What am I missing? Here's my judgment. Okay, but what am I missing? Can I turn my judgment, which is really an assumption, into a question? Can I check my assumption? How can I do that? And so once you go there, I mean, the questions are endless. Yeah. Absolutely endless. And if you notice yourself getting angry, Get curious about that too. Why am I angry? What feels threatened? What am I afraid of? Is that fear justified in this moment, in this conversation? Or what is it that it's tugging on that feels like a bigger threat later on? Because mostly it's that. Very right. rarely are we in a conversation and we think that person's going to kill me. Not Usually not it. But they've said something that makes us feel threatened. Why? Why? Can we get behind that and be like, wait, oh, wait. Come back to this person, back to this person. Can we get behind our judgments where we feel a judgment? We go, no, no, back to curiosity, back to curiosity. It's sort of, um, I don't know if you're familiar with meditation practices, right? But in meditation practices- I was just practices, thinking the word practice. I was just relating it. to exactly that. Yeah. Yeah, because in, in meditation, you know, a lot of misunderstandings of people who, who come into meditation in the beginning, they think, oh my gosh, I, I can't do this because I can't keep my attention on the meditation. I can't keep my mind clear. So I suck at this. I'm no good. But that's never been meditation. Meditation is your attention, you know, like like a monkey in, in Buddhist thought, like a <laughs> monkey will just wander from the tree. Yeah. Your attention will wander. Meditation is about bringing that monkey back to the tree. Yeah. It's not about keeping the monkey away. It's, I mean, keeping the monkey clung on there. That's not the way we work. So same thing. You can actually turn judgment into curiosity over and over and over and over and over again. And after you've done it a little bit with some struggle, it'll become pretty natural. You know, you'll start to notice yourself going, ah, that's an assumption, like you yeah. were doing earlier in this very conversation. Wait, yeah. that's an assumption. So that's where everything becomes fertile ground. You know, it's funny because I've recognized it in other people, and I forgot the way that you described it in the book. But when you were describing it, I the um, the image that that occurred to me over time in doing this thing mm -hmm. it, is uh, dominoes. Like somebody knows there's a domino. Like, oh, you're from somebody did it to me the other day. Well, you're from New York. Yeah. You couldn't possibly be a Republican. You know, yeah. you couldn't possibly yeah. be conservative. You're in the entertainment industry. So there's this domino entertainment industry. Bang! You know, all these other right. dominoes start to fall for folks. Right. But I didn't take the moment to like, I, 
it's important and a good exhortation to practice and recognize when I'm doing that. You know, I see that red hat. I come to all these other conclusions yes. and it's it's my own dominoes that are falling. So the it's a good, I'm glad we're having this conversation because it's a, it's a good reminder. Like this is a practice it when is. I can recognize it like that little monkey that you describe or my thoughts are going, mm-hmm. just acknowledge that thought and then yeah. gently bring it back to the breath, for yeah. example, in meditation or bring it back to curiosity in these conversations. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm noticing too, that it's, so much of this, I was saying people can't hear unless they're heard. Um, you know, you can also talk about being seen or or unseen. Yeah. And in this world, it is easy, it is more likely that you will be seen slash understood by the people around you if you conform to their expectations. So if you are living in a world with lots of labels where this label tends to mean this thing, then if you conform to that, you will be seen. You will be more likely seen with less effort from other people. Yeah. And the but the truth is we have. When, when we're so hyperpolarized, we have put so much certainty behind so many labels. You know, you're liberal, you're, you're urban, that must mean you're secular, that must mean you're a person of color, that must mean you you believe this about abortion. But, oh my God, like really? Like, yeah. I don't know that that many people actually fill all those boxes all the way down, right? But we've, this is the way we talk to each other. This is what we expect. And so what we've created is a world of rampant misunderstandings, mm. rampant, where, where very few people are seen you know, their beliefs and their perspectives for what they really are. I've, I've talked about this a lot recently. The The assumption is that in a divided time, you know, the misunderstandings exist mostly between, you know, from the red side to the blue side or vice versa. But man, within the sides is really intense too. I mean, a lot of people have the experience of some topic comes up, you know, you're conservative, you're surrounded by your conservative friends, and you happen to have a different opinion on this gun issue. But everyone's assuming that you don't, that you agree, and you don't want to be the one like suddenly making an issue of it. So you just kind of silently nod along and there we go. And now the whole group has not been able to benefit from the friction that you could have contributed, yeah. which, which could help make everyone smarter, richer, wiser. But right. we don't do that because we're afraid of disappointing each other. And, uh, you know, who who wants to be the one to have to correct other people's assumptions about them? It's it's It feels laborious, but it's actually, it's actually wonderful. And because we're sitting down a lot uh, instead of standing up to do that, it contributes to our blindness about each other. Yeah, it's so true. There's so many uh, circumstances, situations I've been in where that assumption is made, whether it's with my, you know, liberal friends or with my Christian slash conservative friends. I, my, my kids went to a Christian school for about 10 years. And I remember very early on when they started going there, we would get these newsletters. And the assumption was we all think the same way. And, you know, the Democrat part. And as soon as they said Democrat party, I was like, mm. oh, wait. He thinks that this is like everybody is thinking the same thing. And you know mm-hmm. how Democrat is kind of a trigger, like is is a, a tell, if you will. Oh, yeah. Um, and that there were all these other assumptions that they're trying to do this and they're trying. I'm like, wait, what kind of school is this? Is this a like conservative Rush Limbaugh school? Like what, yeah. what kind of school are my kids going to now? Assuming that everybody is of the same mindset. Um, is there is there a line for you where you realize there is no room to have a conversation. Like I, there are some mm. some friends that I know are hardcore. They've been listening to Rush Limbaugh since 1987. Mm-hmm. And now they're listening to whoever it might be, Dan Bongino. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still people I can, you know, have a beer with. There's still people mm-hmm. I can play cards with. There's still people I can hang out with and have fun banter with online, you know, because we know each other as human beings. But there are some guys that I just have to, I just have to say, oh, there, there's really... 
there's really no room for conversation here. Do you, mm. is, do you have a line like that? And, and if so, what, how, how do you recognize when you just need to like step away from a person or step away from a conversation? Mm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, that's, it's a complicated question. And it's very, it's very, very open-ended for me. My honest answer for now is that I do not have that line. Here's one of the ways that I see ways through, right? Where, where it may seem impossible. One is what conversation are you having? I, I think there, I have, I, in my experience, I have been able to have, if I can't have this conversation with this person, I can have this other one. If I can't have this one, then I can have this one. And my curiosity about them usually means that there's, there's a way, if nothing else, I can talk to them about them. And that's interesting. Um, so I wish I had an example of this. I mean, I think that maybe one of the reasons this feels so doable to me is that in my career in journalism, I have often needed to interview people who have done unsavory things or, you know, would for whatever reason sort of occupy a place that seems somewhat deviant or out of the norm. And it, my job is still to be there and to understand them. So I'm not there to argue, right? I'm not there to persuade or prove them wrong or whatever. Um, in some cases, they kind of know that I'm, you know, they already have some notoriety or what have you. But I, I still want to understand. And so who knows? We might, you know, be in their living room and and we're we're having a chat about the painting on the wall. Yeah. And it lasts 20 minutes because, whoa, you know, everything it unlocked about this person's story or what have you. There's always that conversation to have. Um, I, I, I use this a lot. There's a friend of mine who wrote a fantastic book I highly recommend called Why Are We Yelling? And he talks about how there's three different kinds of conversations across disagreement. One is the conversation about what is true. Another is the conversation about what is meaningful. And another is the conversation about what is useful. So a lot of people get stuck on the conversation about what is true. So if somebody's just like asserting something that is just wrong in whatever way they think there's nothing more I can do here, there's nothing more I can say, this is a line, we're done. But you can move to the conversation about what is meaningful. So you can stay on that same topic. You know, I can tell that you really care about this and I can tell that we see it pretty differently. Why, you know, can, can you begin to tell me like, when did you, when in your life did you recognize that this was, this really mattered to you? Do you remember mm. what, where you were or what you were doing? And then people will start telling you about that and telling you, I have never started that conversation with someone where they didn't feel somewhat grateful to be asked. We hardly ever ask each other why we give certain meaning, why things matter to us. We mostly argue with each other about what should matter more or less. Right. But we don't, we don't usually just start with that pure curiosity of wait, where does this come from for you? So there's that. Now, I don't want to dismiss, you know, your your other kind of part of that question, which is when do you know to walk away? Because there's still moments to walk away. I think um, the analogy for me is heat in a conversation is good. The, the question is whether it's cooking something or burning something. Mm. So if it's cooking understanding, if that friction, you can tell it's like, this is making me sharp. This is fun. This is interesting. Great. If, if it's burning a relationship, if you can feel that hole in your stomach, like my dignity is being attacked right yeah. now and I don't know what to do about it, get out of there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've had a few of those moments. Uh, and sometimes it's, it's my own doing. Um, there was this uh, couples retreat for one of the Bible studies that we were a part of. 
And I woke up the next morning really, really early. I'm like, Lee, we got to go. My, my wife's name is Lisa. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, because the, the fellas and I stayed up late one night and I just kept on asking questions about scripture. The guys, the, the guys that I was with were all, you know, very, uh, pretty far right politically. I'm pretty, actually pretty conservative, objectively speaking, mm-hmm. but there were certain things that we were coming across in scripture where I was like, wait a second, let, mm. let, look, at, look at this immigration issue. And we got to the end of a chapter and I was like, this is like an open border policy that the Bible's talking about. You know, they just didn't like it. <laughs> they, mm. you know, they thought I was being, I, I probably was being just an obnoxious asshole about it. You know, just, <laughs> you know, I'm from Jersey. Like that's what we do, you know, and okay. it just, it wasn't going over well. Um, so the next morning it, I just felt like crap. Like I just mm. felt beaten up. We had to go, but there are other times when it, when it was on me, when I just realized I was beating somebody up, they just pushed my buttons and I did it mm-hmm. just, I was going to ask you, was error there? So you're kind of like the, um, you're the author of the book. I never thought of it that way. Right. Was there ever a time when you just completely blew it? Where if the author of the book, I never thought of it that way oh, yeah. was like looking at you and like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. You completely blew that one. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I feel kind of bad that I'm probably, people probably see me like, oh, she must be amazing. And all her, no, like just today, my husband and I got into some thing over like landscape work that we're doing that, you know, and it, and it's to your point, you know, time passes and you go, "Ah, that was, I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) You know, that was, that was, the thing is where, where you have the most trust you also have the most freedom. You're not, you're not um, walking carefully, you know, sometimes with strangers, you know, when we're in a workshop or on our best behavior, you know, but where there's a lot of trust, sometimes that's where we misbehave the most because we're not, we're just being ourselves. We're not trying anything really. We're just, and so, yeah. So, you know, yeah, there's with my parents sometimes with, with people I love. Absolutely. Sometimes I'm just myself. And like yeah. that horrible judgment is just going to come right out of me. <laughs> Here we go. Right. And, and luckily, you know, I have a supportive enough family where it's like, they know, you know, they may be pissed off in the moment, but like later it's like, we know you didn't mean it. it's fine. So no, they, I'm not some kind of Zen master of conflict. Like <laughs> absolutely not. Here's how bad I am. Um, I'm doing this for a reason, not because I'm the expert that needs to teach everybody how to talk politics and religion, not killing each other. It's because I am like the the student most in need of this. Uh, in one of the circles uh, of, of friends, we spent a lot of time together. Um, uh, my nickname is GFY because they know that I get to a certain point and I'm going to go Jersey on them. And it's, you know, like... <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I get the explicit rating so I can actually say it. That's, that's what, great. They, so they, my nickname is GFY. Yeah. And you so. know what? Sometimes that's awesome. That's the thing, because I, I also feel this is a misconception. A lot of conversations I'm in, you know, that the idea is like we're always going to, you know, every argument has to be really, really calm all the time. Like, no, heat. Heat is good. And as you build trust, yeah. that means that it can handle some of that. Like, what do you mean? You know, yeah. And sometimes, sometimes if there's enough trust, that sort of sharp rebuke can be what gets you to be honest. Yeah. Because sometimes people just pretend, right? Sometimes people are hard. They don't know how to say what they really mean. Or somebody else goes, I don't know. I think you're so-and-so. And the person goes, no, I'm not. What do you mean? <laughs> like, no, you are. But it's going to take a minute, right, for you to admit that. And sometimes if people push your buttons, then you're just going to get more entrenched in, in BS, right? So sometimes the harsh rebuke is what we need, which is why our close relationships, you know, go in and out of these these periods of heat, but but only get stronger as a result. So- so yeah, like if you can get to, you know, some heated banter and like couple lava, couple insults in there to keep it interesting, it's not necessarily bad. The question is whether there's enough trust 
at the at the base of that, you know, to handle it. And for a lot of our relationships with this much suspicion and judgment and vilification that we aim at the other side, we're, yeah. we're miles away from that. We have to start somewhere very different. Yeah. All right. So I know we're getting short on time. So I'm, I want to give a, a, away a little something from the book, but for listeners, really seriously, read the whole thing to really get all the juiciness and wisdom out of this thing. Um, care, C-A-R-E. Can you walk us through care and what that means in conversations? Yeah. So this is about how to ask better questions. Um, the framework is care, curious, answerable, raw, and exploring. Not all questions are curious. A curious question is primarily designed to close the gap between what is known and what is not known. Anytime that you stick an accusation in a question or, you know, a gotcha, try to corner someone, it's not a curious question. Yeah. Then answerable. A question is answerable when you don't have to be some spokesperson for some company to answer it. Oh yeah, when was the last time that that, you know, that <laughs> name one time that 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 uh I don't know, organization didn't harm a business it was protesting. It's like, I'm not the spokesperson. I'm not, what do you, what? Right, we do that. We try to disqualify each other. Right. We use we use often facts or our great news knowledge to try to make the other person feel like they're not even qualified to have this conversation. Um, raw means your question does not carry a baked in assumption. You know, why do you believe something so racist? Uh, is a pretty tough thing. <laughs> To answer, why do you like um, killing babies? Like, geez, right? Like, oh, don't you don't want schools to be safe? Okay, like, what? You know what? So it's it's good to take the assumption and pull it out of the question. You know, so you might say, I gotta be honest with you, that something about that just feels like it's not fair. You know, to people of different backgrounds, different races. So, but tell me more about where it's coming from for you. Like, that's a better question. And then exploring. If questions are exploring, they're not demanding. So sometimes we're like, yeah, no, no, really. Tell me tell me why you really voted for that guy. And so suddenly the whole conversation is about satisfying my needs. You know, you haven't sat, your answers have not satisfied me. So I'm going to keep on asking. Um, honestly, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes I make in my life is mm. I make my questions very demanding. Oh, okay. Uh, so C-A-R-E, curious, answerable, raw, and exploring. That's right. All right. So two more questions and, I, and I'll, I'll let you go. Um, okay. Any questions for me? Yes. Um, so take your pick. Uh, something you've changed your mind about or and I never thought of it that way moment that you'd care to share. Yeah. So something I've changed my mind, but we kind of discussed it earlier. I became a Christian. So whole the whole Jesus thing. Right. Yeah, it's a big deal. <laughs> kind yeah. of a big deal, right? Not, not so common. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I never thought of it that way. You know, it happens. I like to think that it happens almost daily. Yeah. Um, you know, there are, there's a lot of overlap in your book uh, about discoveries that I've made, you know, in how to just do this living to, or you call it, um, and again, I'm going to ask you to pronounce this properly, convivir. Convivir, co yeah, yeah. Yeah, co-living, I think mm -hmm. you say. Um <laughs> how to do this co-living thing better and not to come in thinking that we're going to persuade somebody to make a 180 degree turn and mm -hmm. to be, per, to be persuade a bull in order to be able to persuade like all these things that overlap, but the way like care, 
I never thought of it quite that way, you know, where mm. I never thought of it that way in, in your words. Um, so there were a lot of epiphanies as I read through the book, or at the very least things that maybe I had some ingredients for that mm. I just didn't have the recipe for, you know? Mm. So your book articulated certain things, but some of them were real, just full on epiphanies. So not to, not just because you're here, but, uh, but there have been ways to think through this exercise this practice if you will even just sitting here right now thinking of it as a practice and recognizing those impulses in me to be like no man you got it all wrong you know to the sharp elbow jersey thing to to the curious thing like hmm i wonder what in his life is going on that led him to that conclusion you know so yeah. So there's, awesome. there's a lot of every day, every day. That's great. Yeah. I I'm pretty convinced we all have those moments every day. We just don't notice them. Yeah. Yeah. Just recognize them. So last question, how can we find more informa information about you, Braver Angels, your book? I never thought of it that way and all the great work that you're doing. Yeah. So Braver Angels, uh, highly recommend folks check that out. It's a great way to get involved and learn skills to depolarize yourself and your own communities. And that's at braverangels.org. Sorry. And then uh, for me and my book, moniguzman.com, M-O-N-I-G-U-Z-M-A-N. I'm also all over the socials. All over the socials. That's right. Mm -hmm. I love it. Thank you. This was such mm -hmm. a cool experience for me because, like I said, I read the book and I've listened to you on other interviews and started reading some of your other stuff and, and the learning about the organization. So thank you for doing this. I really appreciate getting to know you a little bit better directly. Yeah, thanks for having me. There were some really awesome questions here that got me thinking, so I really appreciate that. It's great. That's awesome. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit the subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend about TPNR. We're easy to recommend. It's politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials at TP and R pod, you know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion bot. And here's a big way you can support us by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at talking politics and religion without killing each other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.